previously on Truth and Justice. In my opinion, after looking at all of the evidence, I would offer the following profile of Kiao's murder. I no longer believe that this was a random act of violence. I believe that Kiao was being stalked, and she knew she was being stalked. I don't think that the attack began where it ended. I don't believe that this was a premeditated murder, but I do believe it was a premeditated attack. I think the abduction went horribly wrong when Kiao began to defend herself with her knife, and the result was her attackers feeling that they had no other choice but to kill her. This could indicate that Kiao either knew her attackers, or at least could recognize them. I think that our left-handed assailant is probably younger and criminally inexperienced, or at least inexperienced with violence. What we need here is an expert, a real criminal profiler. The only thing necessary for evil to prevail is that good men and women do nothing. I am simply a mouthpiece for good men and women around the world who want to make a difference. The engagement and the involvement of ordinary people is what is going to change our criminal justice system. Many have tried and failed. But the only difference between them and me is I'm bringing an army with me. This is Truth and Justice. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Truth and Justice. I'm your host, Bob Ruff. And in today's episode, we are finally doing something that was never done in Kiao's case. A real crime scene reconstruction by a real expert. Jim Clementi is known throughout the world as one of the greatest criminal behavior analysts from around the globe. Jim started his career as a New York City prosecutor before he made the move to join the FBI. Jim spent over 20 years working in the FBI's Behavior Analysis Unit. After retiring as a supervisory special agent, Jim is now a writer and producer on the TV show Criminal Minds. Profiling, while it is hotly debated, in my opinion is an incredible tool in your toolbox as an investigator, especially when you have a crime with no obvious leads and no obvious forensic evidence to evaluate. Even random crimes, aren't random. Every victim of a crime was chosen at a particular time, at a particular place, for a particular reason. Profilers like Jim look at the crime scene, assess victimology, and try to determine why this victim was chosen. Why at that time, and why at that place. Figuring out the why oftentimes will lead us to the who. And that's what we're trying to figure out in this case. Who killed Kiao Gove? This interview you're about to hear with Jim Clemente is incredibly interesting, and it's a long one. So before we get started with Jim's interview, 
I first want to take a few minutes to tell you about a brand new sponsor that I think all of you ladies listening are going to love. Today's episode is sponsored in part by Lay Tote. So here's the deal. My wife Becky loves new clothes, but she hates to shop. I mean, who wants to wander through a store trying to find that perfect outfit? You have to deal with the crowds, the pushy salespeople, not being able to find the clothes you want and the size you need. There are a lot of women out there that just hate this process. So they resort to buying their clothes online. But when you buy online, you don't get the opportunity to try the clothes on or to see how they fit and look on you. Well, what if I told you that you could have all the new clothes you want to wear every month in styles that are customized just for you and in sizes that you know are going to fit for less than $40 a month? Well, what I just described to you is Laytote. Laytote is a fashion subscription box that sends brand name clothing and accessories right to your door. And they'll send you as many totes as you want every month. You simply wear, return, and repeat. So this is how it works. When you sign up for Laytote, you pay only $39 a month. Once you sign up, the fashion experts at Laytote are going to create a custom tote just for you. And they think of everything. They look at the 10-day forecast of where you live, the sizes that you gave them, the type of style you like, and they put together a box full of clothing and accessories for you. You have the option to go in and take what they put together or change and customize things. Your total gets shipped right to your door. When it arrives, you can wear the clothes for as long as you want to or even just wear them for a day and send them right back. As soon as the post office scans in your return envelope, your fashion expert will put together your next tote for you to customize. And within a few days, you have a whole nother set of outfits to wear. And your monthly fee stays the same whether you do it once, 10 times, even 20 times a month. And I know that one thing that my wife complains about all the time is that when you buy clothes online, different brands have different sizing. Well, they totes taking care of all of that. They actually measure the clothes to make sure that the clothes you get are going to fit you. And after every order, you give them feedback and tell them which items you liked, which ones you didn't like, which ones fit well, which ones didn't fit. So every time you send a tote back, they get closer to customizing exactly what you're looking for. And you can change your totes at any time. Maybe it's wintertime in Michigan, so they tote sending you jeans and sweaters, but you're getting ready to go on vacation to Jamaica. All you have to do is go and customize your tote and tell them you want bathing suits this week. Maybe you don't typically wear jewelry, but you happen to be going to a fancy ball and you want a necklace and earrings. You just customize your cart and you'll have it in a couple of days. Becky's been using Laytote for a little while now and she absolutely loves it. She always has cool, new, trendy clothes to wear and never has to pay more than that $39 a month. And when she finds an item that she really likes, all she has to do is keep it and not send it back in the bag and then they're hers. And we just get charged a fraction of the retail price. It really is an amazing deal. To check it out, just go to laytote.com. That's lay, L-E, tote, T-O-T-E dot com and get started for as low as $39 a month and enter promo code TRUTH to get 50% off of your first month. Fill out your style profile and sign up to get a custom tote delivered right to your door. Wear what you want, return everything in the mail when you're done, and you'll get a new box within days. Again, that's laytote.com, enter my code TRUTH and feel fabulous with fashion delivered right to your door. Okay, we have a very special guest on the line today. And Jim, I'm going to go ahead and let you introduce yourself. I'm Jim Clemente. I'm a retired FBI profiler, former New York City prosecutor, 
and the host of Real Crime Profile and a new podcast that's about to premiere called Locked Up Abroad. All right. Well, Jim, I know you're a very, very busy guy, and we really appreciate you taking the time to come on today. So a little background. I gave Jim a copy of the ME's reports and all the information that you all heard me break down last week. He's had this information for a couple of weeks, and he's been working on it. In the meantime, you all heard last week me give my amateur version of a profile. Now, going into this conversation, I have no idea what Jim's going to tell me, and Jim doesn't let me tell him anything during the course of his evaluating a crime scene. The only way to keep it from being biased, um, I hope uh, we're not far off from each other, but I certainly have some questions to ask you about the evidence and also some of the fact patterns. And then I'd like to, if it's okay, go through the autopsy report with you and talk about what kind of crime this was and what kind of scene this was. And hopefully we'll be able to come to some conclusions. That sounds great. I guess let's go ahead and start with the questions that you have for me, Jim. Well, one of the first questions I have, obviously, because of where the uh, knife was found in the victim's hands, was, is the victim right or left-handed? We still don't have that information. I'm in contact with her son, and he did speak with me one time and uh, said I could call him back, but that was one of the questions I've asked him and have not gotten a response back yet. So we're still unknown at this point as far as handedness on, on Keo. And that knife, is it true that it was... It was from a collection that was in the home, that it was her knife? Yeah, that seems to be the case. Her husband, Kenneth, uh, it was I think it was about a week after the murder, a few days after the murder, noticed that the one of the knives, the big butcher knife from their set at home was missing. The detectives then showed him a photo of the knife that they took from the crime scene, and he identified that as being the knife that was missing. Okay. Well, there's a couple of factors that I think weigh in there. We might as well talk about them right now. The first one is that she had apparently reported to her husband that she thought she was being followed at some point, like a, a few days before. Right. There were mixed reports, and this is some of the information I gave Jim about victim, uh, victimology. The husband testified at trial that a few days before the murder that she had told him that there was a white Cadillac following her and asking her if she wanted a ride during her morning walk. And what did she do with respect to that? Sounds like nothing. The Based on the trial testimony, it looks like she was just not willing to give up her walks. Her husband said that he had warned her many times that, or not warned her, but cautioned her several times that she shouldn't walk alone. She should walk with a friend. And at the very least, wear loose-fitting clothes, no jewelry, things like that to not draw attention to herself. But from the way it sounds, she was going to walk whether he wanted her to or not. Well, I will say this, that in a number of cases, in a, in a, it's with alarming frequency, women who were killed by people who had been following or stalking them, who reported feeling like they were being followed or watched, many of them were actually killed by the person that was stalking them. So that is a, something to keep in the back of our mind, that the fact that somebody reports that somebody else is following or, walk, uh, or watching them and then that person gets killed shortly thereafter, that's a, that's a high-risk factor when you're looking at who might have actually done this. In other words, it would have been an extreme coincidence if a few days earlier somebody was following her and then somebody else just happened to kill her. And we have to look at all the facts here and determine whether or not there was any kind of 
history with this victim, but we'll we'll go into that. I'm just giving you some thoughts off the cuff here as we're talking about that. Okay. So obviously she was not very big in stature, but was she very physical? Do you know? Do you know if she if she worked out? If she if the only exercise she got was the walking? But if she ever took martial arts, anything like that? I don't have any information about her taking any martial arts, but her husband said that she did work out on what he called a solar flex. I assume he meant a solo flex machine. She would do that every morning before her walk. All right. So she probably had some good endurance. The fact that she had a knife in her hand, I think may relate back to a couple of things. One, if you look at the um, what was found with her at the autopsy, it talks about her jogging pants, her top, and a one-piece, he describes it as elastic corset. It could very well have been a, one of the brands is, is Spanx. It could have also been something else. But I know that when I would run, when I was in the FBI, I had, we, there was a, it's like a nine-inch wide band, like elastic band that goes around your waist. It's one piece. And it actually, on the inside of it, has a slip holster that you can put your gun in. I wonder if there's one possibility that she decided to start bringing a knife with her because she was being followed. And maybe the the warnings that her husband gave her and the fact that the neighborhood was going down might have led her to try to protect herself by concealing a knife under a clothes. So just another thing that we should keep in the back of our minds here. You mean like she would use the the corset to like slide the knife into so she didn't have to carry it? Yes. So it wasn't obvious. And, you know, I used to carry my gun in the small of my back, in the center of my back. I could reach it with either hand that way, and it wasn't obvious that I was carrying a gun. If you carry it on your side, it's a lot more obvious when you're running. So it it could have been something like that. Uh, It could also have been sort of, a protection. She could have worn that on the underside and then put the knife in the elastic band of her pants, for example, and held it there. So it might be, it might have been to protect her from the edge of the knife. But it's just one thing that comes to mind that we should think about and we should keep in the back of our minds. Well, yeah, and it makes some sense because I always wondered about the corset because she's, you know, Kia was five foot tall, 110 pounds, and from all accounts, seems to be extremely physically fit. I couldn't wrap my brain around why she would be wearing a corset, especially when she's on a walk. Yeah, right. I think it's more likely to be something like that, like a Spanx or something that she used to conceal a weapon because, you know, he clearly describes her as, you know, not overweight. Anyway, the other thing that I thought was interesting and it relates to the keys is the fact that she had the one handkerchief with her. Now, again, it doesn't indicate where that was. And I'm wondering if that's the handkerchief that she typically wrapped her keys in because she didn't want to get the lubricant that was on the keys, uh, the graphite that her husband put in the key locks. She didn't want to get it all over her fingers because it smelled. So I just wonder, is there any information about that, whether or not that was the same handkerchief that she wrapped her keys in typically? We don't have any other information about it. In fact, I had missed that until I was uh, reanalyzing the autopsy report. I had read that earlier, but when I read about the handkerchief the first time, I didn't know the significance of the handkerchief at the time, so I'd missed it. 
So all we have is the ME's report that says that they found the handkerchief on her. But like you said, we don't, that could have been in a pocket in her hand on the ground. We have no idea. And we also don't know if it was in fact the handkerchief she would carry her keys in. So they didn't cover that in the trial then? No, they did not. Apparently you're not the only one that missed it because, uh, you know, obviously that's something that the prosecutor should have asked the husband about. So if you do have an opportunity to talk to the husband or the, excuse me, her son, you could maybe ask him if he knows what handkerchief she carried the keys in. Can he describe it? And then also, did she typically carry a second handkerchief or not? What we do know about the handkerchief was that it was always a white handkerchief. She had a series of them. They all had you know black stains all over them. And it was he kind of beat around the bush with it. Uh, not intentionally, but it's hard to get. The, what I got out of uh, the, her husband's trial testimony was that one of the handkerchiefs that he, she used for the keys was missing, but he did not come right out and say that. Okay. Well, I mean, I just don't know why the prosecutor wouldn't show the handkerchief that was recovered and ask him to identify it. When, when, when we're all done with this and I can tell you the rest of this case, there's going to be a lot of things that you're shocked about. Okay. Well, then... Can you make a list of things that need to be done? And one of them is see if they still have that handkerchief and evidence and test whether or not there's any other foreign DNA on it, or uh, blood or anything like that. Absolutely. Mike's writing it down right now in my notes. And while we're at it, if they still have the keys, that would be a great thing to do as well, to test them for foreign DNA and blood or any other substances. Right. So... Can you describe the key ring for me and how many keys were on it or anything like that? So from what we know at trial, the there were several keys on a ring, uh, and the keychain was a big K for Kiao's first name. But we don't know exactly how many keys or you know how big of a wad of keys it was, just that there were multiple keys on it and that it was on just a ring with a keychain with a K. Okay. And... Did you get a chance to go and check out, I saw the picture you sent me of the house and the mailbox to the right of the front door. It seemed like it was about, I don't know, four and a half, five feet high. Is that accurate? Uh, it is. I actually had, thanks to you, a very awkward encounter with the man that lives in that house a couple of days ago. But I, mm -hmm. asked, I asked him if I could just look at his mailbox and you know, I explained to him why. I don't think he spoke very good English, so he, he let me do it. And after doing that, I don't see how there really could be any possibility that someone couldn't see in it. So I'm six one and I stood next to the, just, just where you would be in front of the door and opened the lid to the mailbox. And I could see straight down into the entire bottom of the mailbox. Furthermore, I did some research on Kirby and Kirby seems to be about my height, possibly a little taller. And I don't have an exact measurement, but I have several photos of him and he looks to be six one or six two. Okay. And how about Kenneth? I do not have any photos of Kenneth and no information on how tall he was. But Kirby was the one that actually found the keys, and we don't know who was checking the mailbox the days prior to that. Right. Well, yeah, I guess I don't know, something I read, I thought, was that I thought I read that the father, Kenneth, had checked it every day and that this one day Kirby checked and he found the keys in it. And it was like was it like 11 days after her death? Right. It was 11 days after the death. He never specifically said that he was the one that checked the mail every day. He he, he just said that 
they had checked the mail every day since the murder. And it just in Kirby happened to be the one that found it that day. He didn't say that that's the only day that Kirby checked it. So we don't really know uh, if Kirby had checked it on other days, but we just know that Kirby checked it that particular day when they found the keys. Well, I know that there was some testimony that Kenneth had said that the keys mysteriously appeared, but actually it was, that was a leading question. He was asked when they mysteriously appeared. He wasn't asked in a generic way. Did there come a time when he ever saw the keys again? And then he answered, they mysteriously appeared. So I don't know how he would have described it if you actually asked him, but it does beg question whether or not if he looked before, then it, it matters because if this is the first opportunity for them to be there, that means one thing. If it could have been put there shortly after or concurrent with the crime, then that's a wholly different thing. But it sounds like the weight of the evidence is, at least from what we know, that the keys were not in there until 11 days later. That's That's been my assessment. Of course, you know, I can't say that for certain, but that's, I agree that the the evidence seems to indicate that. All right. Can you tell me about whether, what kind of, I know this neighborhood has gone downhill and so forth over the years, and at this time it was, it was pretty rough. Can you tell me about what the crime issues were there, drug, gangs, what, anything in particular at the time of this murder? The stat that I read was that 1991, the year this happened, uh, just just so happened to be the highest amount of murders in South Dallas ever when the, I think the report I read was from like 2008. Uh, but it said there was over 500 murders in South Dallas that year. I know that in that particular neighborhood, there was uh, a murder in the apartment complex just right across the street uh, that turned out to be a, a kid beat his uh, grandma to death with a hammer in her apartment. Uh, and then there was another stabbing murder of a woman a few blocks away that happened almost a month of the day after this offense. Uh, mm-hmm. the, the All right, well, let's not, let's not, yeah, okay. <laughs> let's not go into that one at this point, but it's interesting to know, okay. And then with respect to the, just want to make sure one more question about the handkerchief. Can you also find out if it's possible where the handkerchief was recovered because if I recall correctly, she she would wrap the keys in a handkerchief and hold it in her hand while she walked. Right. Am I right? Yes. Okay, so the question is whether or not that handkerchief was recovered on or near the body or whether it was in one of her pockets and so forth. So if you can find out that piece of information as well. Yeah, I, I can try, but I, I don't know where else to look. I've, I've checked out the, the forensic examiner's testimony, the medical examiner's testimony, and all of the notes and the investigative notes. And I know that when the forensic examiner testified, he testified that all of the evidence came in one bag. And there were some other items they were referring to. And he just said that I have even like hairs and things. You know, they just said they were on her body. They don't know. And he, he specifically said, I have no idea if they were in her pocket on her clothes if she was wearing them, if they were found near her, I have no idea. So he didn't know back then. Uh, so I don't know where I, you know, I'm, I'm going to keep trying to figure that out. But but here's the thing. My reading of it was that when the cops were arriving, the EMTs were loading her onto the ambulance, right? Correct. So if it wasn't on her person at that time, I would find it hard to believe that a cop would take it from the scene and then bring it to 
to the hospital and put it with her. You know what I'm saying? Right. I like, think it had to be uh, my guess. And it's a guess would be that it was in a pocket or clutched in one of her hands. Right. So I think that that is something that the investigating officers, there's no, they're no longer alive or they're no longer around. Do you know? Um, I think one of them has passed away, but one of them is still alive. I haven't been able to track him down yet. Well, but you're Bob Ruff, so I'm sure you will track him down. Right. We'll find so, him. Yes, I know you will. Um, okay. Well, that's all good information. From what I can tell, the neighbor called 911 around 730-ish. Right. Okay. Do you have the 911 tape? I don't. I have an open records request in with the Dallas PD. I already filed one and received the information from the prosecutor's office, and they didn't have it. Um, the Dallas PD request was supposed to have been in a couple of weeks ago. I haven't received it yet, but I've specifically asked for the 911 tape, so I'm hoping I'll get it from them. Okay. Do you know when Kiao typically ate breakfast? I don't. Well, that would be another question for, for her son if, if you do get to talk to him. So he was 18, just graduated from high school, kind of sleeping in late. Is that what it was? Right, yeah, then, he was he was about a a month away from starting college, and according to his dad, he liked to sleep in in the summer. Right, and so did he get informed at home? Was he notified at home? He was. Uh, he didn't find out for about four hours after Kia was found uh, that she had passed away, but he was at home. All right, well, I think that was all the questions I have right up front. if there's anything else so we believe she went out for a walk around 7 a.m we don't know which way she went around the school but typically she would walk around the school kenneth left the house around 6 10 a.m and arrived at 6 20 at work right and we don't think she went out till about 7 a.m that she typically worked on her solar flex and then then would go out for a walk right okay so what can you tell me about kirby what else can you tell me about him? I've been trying to gather a lot of information about him, and I haven't had a whole lot of success. What I have discovered is that from the few people I've talked to, that and, and this is through you know a listener who has a cousin who went to school with him, that he was a generally nice kid, very, very smart kid, never seemed to be in any kind of trouble, uh, and apparently sleeps in in the summers. And, and as of right now, that's all I know about him as a kid. Okay. So the issue of the keys... One of the things that strikes me is that there may be some indicator of remorse, but it could be, it could very well be that somebody found these keys and knew that they were missing. Did the police ever say that they were looking for keys? Was there, was this something that was ever released to the public? Not in any in of the newspaper articles that I've been able to dig up. There's nothing ever mentioned about the keys. Of course, with the big K, Obviously, it would have been known that she had been killed, right? And it could have been that somebody recognized that or somebody who knew her recognized that but didn't want to get involved. It, uh, it could be, but there is, there is a point about that that I don't think I've shared with you yet because I think I learned about it after I sent you this. When Kenneth was testifying at trial, he made a point to say that if anybody saw that K, they would have no idea or make no connection to Kiao because even though Kiao was her given name, everyone knew her as Jit. J-I-T-T. In, in the way, his exact words of trial were that K would have meant nothing to anyone because everyone thinks her name is Jit. 
okay, well, that's important to know. Cool. But if the person who put them in the mailbox was somebody related to the killer, perhaps a mother or a wife or a girlfriend of the killer, they may have felt bad about it and returned them. In other words, it could be an indicator of remorse on the part of the killer, but it could also be an indicator of remorse on the part of somebody who knew the killer. Right. And, and one thing that a lot of listeners have suggested, and I'd like to have your take on, a couple of listeners have suggested that maybe it wasn't about remorse and it was more about intimidation. Does that make any sense to you? I don't know. I mean, unless there was some kind of pointed threat that either preceded or followed it, I don't see how the keys being in the mailbox would be an intimidating factor. seems like a very high-risk behavior for somebody to do um, without a real pointed... I mean, it actually does them a service rather than a disservice. Right. If the keys are still missing, then I would I would change all my locks. Right. I mean, right. I would, somebody might break in, but the fact that they're found, they're back. Um, and you know, if there's a bunch of keys, I don't know what the other keys were for, but obviously that's something that may have made it life a little more difficult had they not gotten them back. Right. Yeah. I, I, I didn't see the intimidation side of it too, but I was just curious what your thoughts were on it. Yeah. I'm not sure. I just don't see evidence of it. It's a good theory, but it's just, I don't see evidence to back it up at this point. So the fact that there is no sexual assault, the fact that her, her ring, I guess it's a gold ring. With, was it a diamond ring or? It was some kind of precious stone. But uh, when I was uh, reading through one of the reports this week, it, it wasn't actually a diamond. Uh, it was some kind of other stone, but it was her wedding ring. Okay. So, yeah, but that was left on her hand. Um, so it kind of rules out robbery as a motive, at least not a completed robbery anyway. But the fact is that when when I'm looking at the autopsy report and these pictures and the crime scene pictures and the crime descriptions, I can tell you that this definitely looks like a very dynamic crime scene. It's a dynamic attack. In other words, it's not static. It does not look to me like it was a blitz attack in which Kiao was incapacitated and then stabbed to death. I believe this was a ongoing crime scene, and most likely it involved more than one location. In other words, she was mobile, and the attacker was mobile, and I think that they moved from one location to another location. And the final location is where she actually passed away. But I don't believe that it necessarily happened all in that place. I think that might be why the keys were not found. And it's very possible that some other person found them and returned them or that they were taken by the offender and somebody else returned them to her mailbox. So far, you and I are pretty spot on. Because uh, I agree, I, I I don't think that she was attacked right there. It doesn't appear to me that it was a quick attack that started and stopped in one place either. No, no, I can tell you definitely it didn't happen that way because I believe as we go through these stab wounds that there are some of them that are completely inconsistent with, with having happened at the same time in the same orientation. In other words, one of the things that you have to understand when you're reading an autopsy report and when you're looking at the directionality of stab wounds 
and even bullet wounds to a certain extent. It's not necessarily a relationship to, it's not a direct relationship to where the person is. It, because both people, if she was unconscious, she wouldn't be able to move. But I don't believe she was not unconscious. I don't believe that she was immobile at any time. I think, you know, you have defensive wounds here, and that indicates that she was alive and fighting for her life. And because of that, she can move with respect to the attacker as well as the attacker moving with respect to her. So I think that we have to keep that in mind as we're looking through and trying to figure out where these stab wounds came from. Right. So one of the problems with, it's a necessary problem, but one of the problems is that the ME has numbered these stab wounds and cuts. And the problem is that it kind of puts in your mind sort of an order. This ME did not make any attempt to sequence these wounds. I would, if I were you, bring this information to a medical examiner like Dr. Werner Spitz, who was very adept at evaluating the sequence of the wounds. Problem is, I don't think that this medical examiner, or it's actually a team of ME that did this, I believe it was signed off on by four different medical examiners. And I think that they did not make any attempt to determine the timing of these wounds or the separation of them in time. And uh, that's unfortunate because I think that would have told a much more rich story in terms of crime scene reconstruction. It's very difficult without that kind of information. For example, her order was severed by stab wound number four. Uh, Her heart was pierced by stab wound number three, I believe it was. And so the timing of those are critically important. Did she bleed out from those two wounds or had she already bled out from earlier wounds? You know, there, there just isn't any information about that. There isn't, I, I didn't see, let me, I didn't see any pictures of, of her clothing or where the, where the wounds bled the most and, and all that. Uh, none of that seems to be there. Was any of that in the trial transcript? No, the trial transcripts is basically reciting almost exactly what's in the report. I mean, don't you find that don't you find that ridiculous that they never took a picture of her fully clothed? They never took they never did any kind of description as to what wounds bled and what wounds didn't or how much any particular wound bled and why didn't they document that? Yeah, it's extremely frustrating and I'm hoping that when I get the police file, that maybe some of those photos will be there uh, because they weren't in the prosecutor's file or they at least weren't admitted into trial. Well, I think that probably what happened was that the M, excuse me, the EMTs probably cut off her clothes because she was bleeding from multiple places and they were trying to address it in the process of transporting her and seeing if they could revive her or keep her alive. But they didn't call her dead at the scene, right? Correct. She was pronounced dead at the hospital about 45 minutes later. And they had rendered some assistance. Would they give her, put an IV in? Did they open the air? Yeah, at the the time of the autopsy, uh, it was indicated, I think in the reporter, it might have been the trial transcripts, that she had IVs in both arms and an oropharyngeal airway inserted into her mouth. 
So they were, they were working her. So it's possible that they cut all that stuff off before she even got to the hospital. And that's why. So the cops that responded arrived just after they were taking her away. So they didn't really have an opportunity to look at or photograph the condition of her body. Right. It makes it pretty difficult because as the first officer who was a trainee showed up on the scene, the EMTs were just putting her on the backboard, taking her away. So they had to reconstruct the crime scene without her. Well, I'm going to say that I believe that the stab wounds on her back most likely preceded the stab wounds on her front and that she ended up on her back kicking the attacker or attackers. And that's how she got stab wounds number 12 and 13 on her right buttock and her right thigh. I believe she was either on the ground kicking up at them and the killer would have stabbed downward, which then appears upward on, you know, as the body is laid out. Right. And that that had to have happened while she was on her back. And so I believe that those stab wounds on her back must have already occurred. Right, I agree. And then, and then the stab wounds, and, and particularly because she was found with her knees in an upward-pointing position, I believe that that is consistent with her having kicked at the attacker. In other words, just the probability that that happened after, for example, that she was stabbed on the front, then stabbed on the back, and then stabbed in the buttocks, I I just don't see that happening, especially since there are two very fatal wounds on her chest. I believe they may have been delivered last. And obviously, it would be extremely telling to, to know if the blood spatter on her outer clothing was analyzed. I mean, did they do any of that? Did you see any of that? If they did any of that, it's not documented. Yeah, well, that would tell a story, whether she was upright, whether she was vertical or horizontal, um, whether she was partially upright, whether she was on the ground with her legs kicking up in the air. It's also possible some of the directionality of these wounds could be consistent with Dr. Lee's theory in the Ron Goldman and Nicole Brown Simpson murders that somebody was holding Ron Goldman from behind while somebody else was attacking him from the front with a knife. That's another way in which somebody could be stabbed in their buttocks and thigh in a downward motion that would then appear to be an upward motion in this diagram. Do you understand what I'm saying? Yes, like if they were holding her and then she was kicking her feet up at them. Yeah, like that's a defensive wound, like coming curling up into a ball, first of all, Somebody's got you around arms, pinning your arms to your side and your chest, across your chest, then bringing your knees up so they covered your chest is a protective move. And also kicking out is a protective move. So it's possible that they stabbed her while she was in that kind of a huddled position or trying to kick them. And I do believe that that is an indicator that the person that did those stab wounds is right-handed. Okay, so if her back was to them, yeah, that would be their right hand coming at her. No, it was because her front was to them. Right. And her legs were up, so her buttocks would have been exposed. But the stab wounds are from, are slightly, if I'm not mistaken, let me just look at your diagram here. They're in an upward direction, but the point of the knife is 
in order to actually see what it's like, it would be like if you fold if you fold that picture in half mm-hmm. um, at her waist and and turn it upside down so that the legs are now up in the air, that's what she would look like if she was being held from behind and she brought her legs up. And then the stabs are right to left going downward, which in the diagram then become stabs that look uh, like they're going in an upward direction. But remember that a hit, the hips also can rotate and move from side to side. So directionality, again, it's, it's, it's not as definitive as you might think, because if, if it's, again, if somebody is, is completely immobile, that's one thing. But if somebody isn't, there's the hip joint can move, the, the waist can move, but each leg can move. And I believe this was a dynamic crime scene. In other words, she was fighting with them the whole time. I don't believe that she was just passive at any time during this. And I believe she may have gotten away once or twice. And that's why you see discontinuity in the direction, directionality of the blade, which, which direction the sharp end was. And also the directionality of how the blade entered her body. So you should definitely think about it's moving pieces, but there is a possibility that there is more than one knife being used here. One of them being three quarters of an inch wide and one of them being up to one and three quarters inches, I think, is the widest wound that we have here. Am I right with that? Yeah, one in one and three eighths. Okay. So there's a possibility that those were made by the same knife because if it goes in three quarters of an inch and then the hand that's putting it in or the body that it's in moves, it could be dragged out and cut that whole opening wider. So we know that it's a minimum of three quarters of an inch wide blade, but it's also possible to be, to be wider. Do you understand? Am I making myself clear? Well, well, what wouldn't it be that it couldn't, if it was one knife, that it couldn't be bigger or wider than three quarters? Like, like the smaller knife could make the bigger wounds, but a bigger knife right. couldn't make the smaller wounds. Correct. It has to be a minimum of three quarter inch wide. Not, um, excuse me, a maximum three quarter inch wide knife that made several of the wounds, but that knife could have. That same three-quarter inch knife could have made the wider wound, but the knife that made the deeper wounds could not have been any more than three-quarters of an inch wide. So there is open the possibility that it is two different blades, but it is possible that that all of these wounds, every single wound on this body was made by one knife that was three-quarter inches wide. Right. I agree. And And that was exactly her testimony. Okay. Well, she did good about that. Yeah, she was actually did a very good job in, in the trial of not overstating any opinions. You know, she said okay. she was asked, could it be that there was just one knife? And she was careful to say if there was only one knife, then it would have had to have been a maximum width of three quarters of an inch. Okay. So it's important to know that knife wounds, even if fatal, and gun wounds, even if fatal, don't kill right away. Right. And there are people who've been fatally shot a number of times who still move and attack or run away. 
adrenaline is an amazing thing and other drug can also drive people you know i'm talking about illegal drugs but also hormones and and so forth that are secreted in, in your body can also drive you past what should have killed you. So the fact that she has a number of fatal wounds does not mean that she either died or even stopped fighting when she received those wounds. To me, I would say that she was very brave. She did not give up. It was an attack of a non-compliant victim, and it indicates this attack and the stab wounds and their locations and the variety of them and the variety of angles and depths tells me that it has the sort of imprint of an offender that failed to control his victim. In other words, one of the things that we have learned in the behavioral analysis unit about human behavior is that people can be extremely well controlled by a knife blade. People are actually more likely to be controlled by a knife blade than they are by a gun. And that goes to the fact that most people have had an experience in their lives where they were cut by a knife. They know what that feels like. They know that it slices right through the skin. They know how dangerous that can be. And they fear that. It's a visceral fear. And yet a gun that can potentially do more damage, people don't typically have an experience level with a gun. Most people have not been shot, and so they don't know what it actually feels like. And so the reaction is not as visceral. This person was unable to control this victim with a knife, with a threat of a knife. And I don't see a lot of what would indicate to me that this person sort of came up from behind and stuck a knife at their throat to try to control them. There's no scratches on the neck. There's no knife wounds on the neck. There is the one wound across the face, but that could very well be that Fender was coming down with the knife and the victim deflected the knife or deflected herself so that the knife ended up cutting her there. There's no indication to me that this person had control of this victim at any time. I think this was dynamic, the entire interaction. And I think that when finally the victim was down on the ground, that the stab wounds to the chest, number two, three, four, five, maybe six, were were done in that sort of dynamic way. And I think if you look at those, stab wound two, the sharp ends of the blade, points sort of in an upward direction to the left, Stab wound three, sharp end of the blade, points in an upward direction to the right. Stab wound four, again to the left. Stab wound five, again to the right. And then stab wound six is rotated even further down to the right. I think those things happened at two different times in this incident. Unless the victim was fighting so badly that it caused the offender to literally rotate the knife in his or her hand during this attack, which seems kind of unreasonable. I don't see how those could have happened all at the same time. What did you think when you looked at that? Oh, I I agree completely. I had kind of, by my assessment, clustered uh, a couple of the wounds together, uh, and that was stab wound number one, and stab wound number four, and I think one and four together, and then five and six together, as though if, and that was assuming 
if you have a right-handed person coming from behind reaching around that they're reaching over and stabbing and hitting the chest and then hitting lower on the chest and then come back and come under the arm to create wounds number six and five that they could have happened at one time. But I don't see how stab wound number three fits with any of them. Well, to me, stab wound five and three look like they're had the same directionality. And I agree with you that, that two and four also do, but I think three and five work the same. For example, if the offender, with respect to this victim, as you see it in the diagram, if the offender was on the victim's right-hand side, let's say the victim's on the ground now, and the offender would be by, you know, let's say kneeling by the victim's elbow, right elbow, Mm -hmm. then those stab wounds from a right-handed person could have been driven in right there. And and for me, I was looking at, I was trying to, you know, it's so difficult to take all the elements together. I was looking at, you know, the the orientation of the blade and along with the directionality of the stab is kind of where I had come up. Because, because the, at first I had marked, you know, the orientation was different. So it came from a different place. And then I kind of ran on, ran some ex- experiments and pretended to stab Mike several times in the studio, which he appreciated. It was like, it, it actually almost seemed natural if you hit two stabs over the shoulder and then swung your arm around from underneath like underneath the arm for the following two that they could end up oriented that way uh if it was that dynamic i'm just not sure that you're going to get that much penetration out of a stab wound that's general that you're you're basically saying you think that the offender was behind and and pulling the knife towards himself into her body Right, or at least that that's a, a a theory. Yeah. Well, I just I don't know if that's the case, but I think that the depth of these wounds, up to the depth of four and a half inches, I believe, that I think that the back is probably on the ground at this point. But you know, I'm not totally discounting what your theory is. I'm just saying I just don't. I just it seems like the most common way to dispatch somebody. If that's what you're trying to do and you're behind them is to simply take the knife and draw it across their throat. And that's it. I mean, why go through the stabbing motion of, you know, bringing the knife back towards you? It sounds, it seems a little one dangerous, I guess, unless you know that that person's body is more than four and a half inches and your knife is only four and a half inches. But it just seems like a, a much more difficult thing to do than literally just taking the knife and slice in their throat but anyway that be that as it may i think if you look at these stab wounds in the clusters that you're talking about i do believe that you get a change in directionality based on the twisting of the body i mean i don't think she's dead right i think i don't think she's incapacitated and i don't think she's being pinned to the ground still so it's just her position relative to his position i'm just going to say the victim's position relative to the killer's position has changed, but that doesn't mean that he has actually moved physically. In other right. words, he draws his hand back and she curls into a ball, twists her body to the right. You know, that changes the directionality completely. So you have to just think not in terms of the static way that the body's being diagrammed, but the dynamic way in which people can move with respect to each other. Again, the fact that there doesn't seem to be enough of any kind of contusion on the head 
to indicate that she was knocked unconscious. There's no brain bleed. There's no indicators that she was immobile. So I would think that what you're seeing more likely is because she is moving as the knife is going in and out and in again. She's moving in between those strikes. That makes a lot of sense. And and also what you had said about, uh, you know, I hadn't thought about why reach around and make multiple stab wounds if you're behind them when you could, like you said, slit her throat or just drive the knife through her back. So I, I think I think your your hypothesis on this is probably a lot closer than than my original one was. Well, I don't know for sure. Obviously, there's still a lot of questions. But like, for example, if you look at stab wound number two, stab wound number four, the orientation of the knife and the angle appears to be the same. In this case, it appears to be that either the fender was with respect to her, let's say she's on the ground, would have been kneeling above her shoulder near her head with the knife blade pointing towards the offender and a downward stroke is made, right? Right. But her body was probably lifted a little onto her left shoulder so that the angle of entry from the perpendicular looks like it's from front to back and top to bottom. You see what I'm saying? Yeah, that makes perfect that sense. Could, that could all be done with her rolling over to her left side, curling up maybe. Trying to get um, away from him. Right. But then if you look at stab wound number six, that's not the case at all. Because now the knife point is oriented 180 degrees in the opposite direction. And so, A, it could mean that he stabs her. Stab number four is the first one from that position. Stab number two is the second one from that position. He hits her sternum in that. It knocks the knife out of his hand. He picks it up, and now the blade's in the other direction, and he stabs her down in the abdomen. You see what I'm saying? Yeah, that makes sense. All three of those directionally come from the same direction. So he hit. He he got one deep stab wound in the middle of her chest. He stabbed her again at the top of her chest, but hit the sternum and the knife fell out of his hand or loosened out of his hand. He re-grabs it, but the blade is going in the other direction and he reaches down to a softer area because he failed in the upper chest area and now he stabs her towards the abdomen. So that, that, that makes all three of those, stab wound two, stab wound four, and stab wound six, all within the same short period of time. Yeah, those are actually, I have... In my original markup here, I have those three clustered together. Okay. The unique factor is that two of them, the sharp part of the blade is, is oriented one way, and the third one it's oriented the other way. So I'm trying to figure out how does that happen. And right. One of them we know very shallow because it hit her sternum, and therefore that might have knocked it out of his hand. He may have even gotten cut at that point because his hand slipped down on the blade, and it turned around for the next one when he grabbed it put it back into her. So again, I think those most likely happened seconds. In other words, I don't believe that happened in the, in the beginning, in the initial stages of this attack. I believe that there are stab wounds on her back that preceded that. And I do believe that she might have been flipping back and forth and the indicators of the directionality like if we now go to back diagram, you'll see that stab wounds 8, 9, and 10 
all have a directionality from her left side to her right side. Right. And if we go back to the previous ones, remember, it looked like he was at her right shoulder, right? Mm -hmm. So if you now look this way, if he was at her right shoulder, that doesn't make sense, right? Right. The ones that make sense then are the ones that are numbered 7 and 11. That makes sense. Right. Right. So the ones that are 8, 9, and 10 were most likely made when the stabber was by her left shoulder. So A, that can mean there's two different stabbers here. Or B, it can mean that these are two different incidents. In other words, she broke away, something interrupted, she fought him off, and then he got her again. Right. Do, do, do you find there's any possibility of indication of handedness here, where we have the three wounds that go left to right, and then the two wounds that go right to left on the back? Well, again, if they were, if we could definitively say that they were different weapons, then I think that would be relevant. I think that since we're talking about only one of these wounds is three quarters of an inch, the other ones are all greater than that, um, that could be the movement of the body while the stabbing is happening. But they're generally centered, and I would say that it's just very difficult to say. I would say that the that it's possible for the ones that are labeled 7 and 11 to have been done by a right-handed person who is stabbing with the blade facing them, stabbing downward at a position near her right shoulder. And again, this is like, let's say somebody who's kneeling down on the ground and she's prone on the ground. And then the other ones also could could have been done number eight and number 10, you know, seem to be in the same general direction. If she was rolled up on her right shoulder and he was stabbing down, it would get that directionality. I think the, the one where number nine labeled number nine could have, it could be her turning or it could be him moving. Obviously there's a lot of spine and rib there bones that they could hit. So I'm not exactly sure why the angle, the, the sharp edge is downward, but it seems to me that there's a, a high likelihood that that person did 8, 9, and 10 all around the same time and 7 and 11 at different times. I completely agree with that. That's exactly what I had in my notes. The anomalies are one, the two on her buttocks and, and thigh, which I think we've already explained, and then on the head, there's a short stab wound, half inch deep, and it could, it's, it's totally consistent with the stab wound seven and 11. And I think that it could have been done at the same time as seven and 11. The cut, it's hard to say because there's no information about it. It could be that, that she was hit on the head at some point. It could be that she was, her head hit the ground at some point. It could be that her head hit something sharp at some point. I have no idea. It's just, there's just not enough information and I'm just surprised there are no photographs of it. Yeah, there don't seem to be any, at least not admitted in trial, any close-up photographs of any of the wounds. No, it just boggles my mind. I'm sorry, but it boggles my mind why they wouldn't do that. Be that as it may, we have what we have. But the cut, number two, if I'm not mistaken, it's only sharp edge. So I right. believe that was a slash 
that was a slash. And I think that if you look at stab wound one, if the victim turned her head towards her right, right after that, or even if that stab, that particular stab pushed her head, you know, so that her, her nose turned to her right. Um, I think that next, if he stabbed in the same place, it could have cut right along her cheek like that. Right. Um, Meaning that he, he kind of, he missed his stab and ended up slicing her cheek instead. Yeah. To me, I don't see how you would get that upward motion if that stab wound was from while she was facing the offender. I mean, her head would have had, her chin would have had to have been lifted up really high in order for that to happen. But from the back, from a taller person or from a person who's oriented above her, that would be doable. So do you have any questions for me before I get into some of my thoughts here? Okay, this seems like a great time to take a quick break to hear about our sponsor, and then we'll get right back into Jim's analysis. Okay, we're back from our break. And Jim, did you have any more questions for me before we go on with your analysis? I don't think so at this time. I mean, obviously, there are still a bunch of unanswered questions, and I'd love to hear what you find out when you get more deeply into this investigation. But I will say that, obviously, my analysis at this point is limited by the lack of information that we have. But there are some indicators here that are important and that I think tell us something about this offender or offenders. So that we'll we'll go into it and you can ask me questions and tell me what you think and we'll see where we go. All right. That sounds good. Let's get started. All right. Well, I think the first indicator that I would say that that really tells me something is the fact that this offender was or offenders were unable to completely control this victim. And so I do not believe that there was a traditional blitz attack. In other words, blitz attacks are overwhelming application of force that completely incapacitates the victim. I think this is more likely a surprise attack that didn't go as planned by the offenders and that it is something that they had to sort of just sort of make up as they went along. They were not experienced. They were not very effective at this crime and that it probably meant that the post-offense behavior was probably a, a good deal of panic because they did not, it did not go uh, according to plan. That plan was probably somewhat done in advance. In other words, I don't think there's a lot of indicators here that this person was extremely criminally sophisticated or forensically sophisticated because they didn't accomplish their goal right away. And I think that when you see this kind of behavior, then it can be an indicator of immaturity or it can be an indicator of mental illness. In other words, this was a risk. This was a high-risk crime for a couple of reasons. One, that it is it was done out in the open during daylight hours. And even though it was early morning, it's by a school and there's a lot of probability that there are people there getting ready for school and so forth. So it is a high-risk crime. On the other hand, the fact that she was worried enough, and I believe that the indicators point to the fact that she took that knife for protection. I think the fact that she was worried enough to do that means that there was probably more than just one incident 
where she felt she was being followed. And despite that, she is a determined woman. She is very set in her ways. And what that did, unfortunately, was raise her risk. I believe the person or persons that did this knew this was her routine, saw her over and over again, and as a result, chose this particular time to act. That could have been because of a an extreme stressor in their life or a sort of buildup of desire. But there are no indicators that this was done because of sexual desire. So let's talk about what other desires there might be. Does this work look like the work of a, a serial killer who just wants to find whatever opportunity, kind of lays out a trap or throws out a web and whoever gets caught in that web, he kills. I just don't see that indicated here because it doesn't look like this person has any experience at all in killing someone. Although I would say that the goal of this attack seems to be totally for the purposes of killing her. So that could mean revenge. That could mean somebody um, put them up to it. Could mean somebody hit on somebody could also mean that there are some, you know, there's some indicators that it could be multiple offenders. So it could be something that they had an idea and they were going to attack or rob, but when it went so wrong, they just took off. There's also a possibility that there is some kind of, I don't know, gang related violence here. What was the situation in terms of gangs in that neighborhood? The best information that I have uh, was from a few people that lived in the neighborhood at the time when this murder occurred. And the best information that I got was that around that time that, quote, the gangs were starting to move into the area. Uh, apparently it got much worse after that. But I, I don't have any you know hard statistics or anything like that. I've just been told that, as, as a matter of fact, the person that found the body, they broke their lease and moved out of the house they were renting shortly after this because there was another couple of incidents with thefts and robberies and things. And they just said the, the gangs were moving in. And so they got out. Well, I mean, like, let's say this. If I were a gang member and I wanted to scare people out of the neighborhood and I decided to kill somebody to do that, it seems like they might have dragged her into the middle of the street, left her there or something put some gang sign on her body or whatever. You know what I'm saying? Right. But that uh, that seems to have been done. So I'm just, although it's a possibility, I'm not really leaning towards that. But I do think that it was an inept or more than one inept killer because I think that they may have had other motives but didn't quite get there because of the fact that they didn't know what they were doing. Now, on the topic of motive, you said uh, a few minutes ago that you thought that the goal of the attack was murder. So, so, so d when you when you're looking at this, do you think that they they attacked her with the intention of killing her, or do you think it's possible that there was another motive? And when she pulled the knife out and things broke bad, that it just ended in murder. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. The only goal that's obvious is murder because there was no other indication. The thing that concerns me is that. There are indicators that she was being watched, followed, stalked, or all of the above. And having a regular routine means that somebody could have been watching her for some time, seeing her go by, maybe building up a desire, but being totally inept at being able to carry it out. In other words, 
yeah, they could have intended to threaten and, and rape her, for example. But she pulls a knife. They're like, you know, they don't know what to do. She gets away. They get her again. There's all sorts of confusion, and she just won't die because they're, you know, they're stabbing her all over the place multiple times from multiple angles. This did not go at all like they planned. So I do think that it could be that somebody had built up a desire for her and acted on that. But it could also be this is so confused, this is so inept, that it could also be somebody who just wanted to take control of her, didn't get that response from her, and completely lost and killed her. If we go back to that that first scenario where you know maybe it's a stalker that might have uh, built up a desire and maybe the intention is to abduct and sexually assault you know when they didn't plan it very well she had the knife things break bad if we're if we're looking at that hypothetical scenario does the fact that they killed her rather than just fleeing does that tell us anything about the offender it could really indicate the fact that they thought that they would be identified in other words I would think that that would be an offender that was either known to her or known to the area because you don't want to leave a witness. If I'm a complete stranger and I just pull up because I see her walking around alone and I pull a knife on her and she pulls a knife on me, I'm like, oh, hey, whoa, okay, I'm out of here. You know, why go to the whole extent of murdering her? It seems kind of extreme. This person was goal-directed. I mean, they followed through. Why? What was the purpose of killing her then? Like I said, it doesn't show an indicator that, you know, for example, if it's a young guy, inexperienced at killing, curious. Usually you'll see peakerism. They kind of probe with the end of the knife to see what it's like, you know, sticking it in somebody. And you don't see that. But you see some really violent, deep cut and attempts to do more damage but ineffective, you know, hitting the sternum, for example, hitting the skull. Somebody who didn't know that if you stab somebody in the head, it's not going to go through the skull without some serious force behind it. So, again, I'm saying this is either a young, inexperienced person or somebody who had some mental disorder that caused this kind of behavior. Because this is, it's determined behavior but it's inexperienced behavior. Well, I guess a question that I would have is after looking at the, the ME's report and some of the things we've talked about at this point, if you had to, I don't want to say make a guess, but are you leaning towards one offender or multiple offenders? There's two indicators here that there are multiple offenders. And one is, the different widths of the night wound and the multiple angles of entry. And the other is the wound on her buttocks and the wound on her thigh, which are in an upward direction, which to me indicates that she's either laying flat on her back and kicking up or somebody's holding her around the arms and waist or chest and she's kicking up. So there's two potential indicators of multiple people. On the other hand, Murder is not something that typically happens in numbers. And so you basically have to go with the weight of the evidence. And in general, I think people do this kind of attack. It's early in the morning. Whoever it was didn't have sufficient control over the victim. 
So that's really inept for one person. It's really, really inept for two people with two knives to not be able to control somebody. You see what I'm saying? Right. So we have to look at what are the possible scenarios why multiple people would be attacking her. Because it's a bad neighborhood and they're trying to rip her off? Well, then why didn't they take the only valuable things on her body, her ring and her watch? Why go through all that and do nothing unless they're about to do that and the dog's alert and they run off? Let's just say, I mean, if you're talking about, I'm a bad guy, I got a knife, I want to kill somebody, or I want to rip somebody off, are you going to do it at 7 in the morning? Is that the right time to go out hunting for somebody? Well, I I was going to ask you about that, if the time of day told you anything about the offender, because it seems like such an odd time. And to me, unless it was a planned attack based on her routine. Right. Well, it indicates that to me. I mean, because it is an odd time. Unless there's always people walking around that area at 7 a.m. Is she the only one? Did she? She walks with other people sometimes, right? She does, but it sounds like most of the time in the morning she was by herself. But we do have indication that there was at least one other person that had a typical routine of walking around about that time. But that's all we know for certain is that there were two people that had that routine of that, you know, one mile track around that school that would walk uh, between seven and eight in the morning. And, you know, when she complained to her husband that somebody stopped and asking her if she wanted a ride, I mean, obviously that bothered her enough mention it to him it probably got her you know the little hairs on the back of her neck standing up and that's why she mentioned it to him and we don't know but that could be the impetus for her bringing that knife with her that may have been something she just started to do recently or it may have been something she'd been doing for a long time and she just never told her husband about it but my feeling is that there are there are Probability. I, I don't believe in coincidences unless there's like absolute proof of them. And to me, the probability is that whoever was following her did this. And so that means that this is not just an impulsive act, but it shows just lack of experience. So even though it may have been a semi-planned event, it could be that the person who did it totally lacked maturity or had some kind of mental mental disorder so that's why it goes down the way it goes down yeah i think a lot of that makes sense all right jim so now that you have analyzed all the documents and created your profile without knowing anything about any suspects i'd like to run by a couple of scenarios run them by you and and see how you think they relate to what you found in the crime scene would that be all right yeah sure okay so Scenario number one, we have a witness that came forward a couple of months later and said that, and I don't know if you have the aerial photo still there in front of you, but up. Uh, let me get it. Okay, got it. But the morning of the murder, somewhere shortly after seven o'clock, we have a adult woman and her 13-year-old nephew were driving around the neighborhood looking for a family member. And they both said that they saw right on the corner of Grady and Apache, just east of Apache, uh, so that'd be the northeast corner there, that they saw, sounds like three to four men driving a white Camaro Z28 who were dragging a woman into a car while she was screaming. Right. Uh, so let's back up a little bit. When, when did that occur? So it occurred the morning of the murder. 
but they didn't come forward with the information until about two months later, or actually I think it was closer to four months later. Well, just, all right, but let's just talk about that for a second, because one, they're eyewitnesses, which we all know are the least reliable uh, source of information. Right. But the fact that it was months later and the fact that they didn't find about the murder until months later tells me that they might not have been talking about that same date but it's still instructive because it could have happened at exactly that place that they, they describe it in exactly the way they described it, but it just happened on a different day. It could have preceded the murder. It could have come after the murder, but that's less likely, I would think, because the people were probably on alert after that. But yeah, so that would be consistent with sort of a roving band of gang members or gang-type members. Again, it sounds like that, if that's the case, is that ever reported? In other words, did anybody ever complain to the police that they got, that, that somebody's missing or somebody got abducted or, you know, where's the victim in that case? Well, it, it sounds like based on the investigative notes that they did. So there, the, the woman who was driving had told her sister, according to the investigative notes, that day that it had happened. And then the next day, the sister called the witness and told her that they think that woman was murdered and she should call the police. And she just never did. And I don't know why she passed away shortly thereafter. So we don't know why. And so we're left with a 13 year old. She did write out an affidavit. But uh, well, well, what time did they say that happened? They said it was shortly after seven in the morning it would have been right around the time of the murder. But, you know, well, that, that depends on. You know, how much was their memory affected by knowing that the woman was killed at seven in the morning? Well, that's what I'm saying. Like, how would they know that? Well, a day later, I guess it would be, you know, it was in the newspaper, but it's, you know, it's all trying to piece all this together through the right. notes. Good. And right, that, but what, I mean, does it say in the paper the next day that she was murdered around seven o'clock? Yes, it does. Yeah, we have that does newspaper article. Fuck. Or does it say 7.30? I would have to double-check that. But I know that it did say that it gave the time she was pronounced dead and that it happened around 7 o'clock when she would take her walk. All that information was in the Dallas Morning News the next morning. Well, it is consistent with what we see. I mean, that would not be inconsistent with the victim having been dragged into the car and getting away and then being tracked down to the place where she was actually killed. Okay, and I, that's the big thing for you because it, it's one of those – I'm just like you where it was like, well, it's an eyewitness testimony. It seemed shaky. But then it seemed like there were a few things that may corroborate it. Uh, for example, something I just noticed today was you know, I had in my notes that Kenneth uh, Keough's husband had said that she told him that there was a white Cadillac following her around. But what I hadn't mm -hmm. noticed until I reread the testimony today was that he said that she said it was a white Cadillac. But she doesn't know cars, so it might not have been a Cadillac. And it got me to thinking, could it have been a white Camaro? Well, I mean, just the fact that it's a white vehicle. So let's look at the consistencies here. It's a white, American-made, big-engine car, right? Right. I mean, did she have messed up Camaro and Cadillac? Absolutely. What's the... the it's a start with a C. So... It's a white American-made vehicle, starting with a C. All right, so 
she could have gotten all those things right. Again, coincidences? I don't know. Yeah, but, it it seems like too many coincidences. Yeah, and I do believe that that was a remember when I said the risk factor was that she had such a regular schedule. Right. It means that somebody was driving around at that seven o'clock hour on a previous day. So the fact that that somebody would have done it again, I think that's totally consistent. I, I do. I think that's a, that's a pretty high probability factor to look at. If I had thought that the body discovery location was the primary and sole crime scene, I would probably discount it. But I don't believe that it was the primary and sole crime scene. I do believe that this crime occurred over at least two different locations. And the fact that there are multiple directions from which she was stabbed tells me that it happened over time. It didn't all happen at once. Yeah, and I agree. And and so that that's good to know because that that was the big thing for me is like the stories sound a little fishy, but there's consistencies and in your opinion, whether or not that's even a possibility that would fit the crime. And it sounds like it's at least a possibility. Yes. And and thing that you said to me that made it a little more credible is that her sister said that she reported it to her the next day and told her to call the police. So that because the woman was that woman may have been killed. So there was some immediate contemporaneous corroboration of that. Now, I, so I, I think so, the credibility goes up significantly because she reported it at the time. It was the four month delay that made me have the question in the first place. Right. And, and that, she never did really give an answer as to why she waited so long. I kind of wonder if it's not, you know, she was um, a minority and whether there was, you know, fear of police or just avoidance of police. Uh, that didn't want to get involved. So I, I don't know why she waited so long, but her, like you said, her sister did say she told her you need to call the police, and she just waited months before she did. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I have another scenario I want to run by you and see what you think. So another report from witnesses, or not from a witness, but there was another report that it was a, a Crime Stoppers tip that a man, this guy's uh, Caucasian guy, six foot two, really fit guy, muscular guy, uh, had just gotten out of prison. He'd been in prison uh, a couple of times, had quite a long rap sheet, who liked to jog around the school occasionally in the mornings. And as the story goes, this guy is going for a jog, comes across her and just grabs her and stabs her to death and runs away. Does that scenario fit to you with what we're seeing? 28 years old. And he just got out of prison for what? Uh, he had just gotten out of prison for um, assaulting a man and stabbing him. Or, no, no, no. Excuse me. The first time he went in, he was in a bar fight. The guy pulled a knife on him, and he had stabbed the guy, I think, in the arm, got out, was on parole, and then was trying to rob a drug house and uh, got into an altercation and beat up a few guys outside of the drug house, and that put him away for four and a half more years. And he had just gotten out about eight months before this. Well, to me, that guy, if he had confronted her and she was not cooperative, he would have punched her in the head and knocked her out and done whatever he wanted to her. That guy is not the guy that did what we see on this body. Okay, and I agree with you on that one, too. And then one more uh, suspect that uh, or report there was that there was reports of an unstable 
African-American gentleman, I believe in his 30s, that used to walk around the neighborhood talking to himself or, or uh, walk around that same track. He's the one I was telling you about that had a consistent habit of walking about that same time. There were reports that he would talk to himself and that he had made rude comments to women when he went past them. As it turns out later, which I've now confirmed, he told police that he talks to himself because he was a, a minister and he would practice his sermons when he was walking around. But we still have this report of him making rude comments to women when he was walking past them. No reports of and, anybody seeing him do it, just that they saw him that morning out walking. And what is his criminal arrest history? None. Okay, and what is his mental health history? Has he ever been treated for mental issues or locked up for 72-hour evaluations or anything like that? None that I'm aware of. When the detectives interviewed him, he had wrote in his report that he did not seem mentally unstable at all. And I know that at, at this point in today, which is, you know, 26 years later, he is the assistant pastor at a very large, or excuse me, he is the lead pastor at a very large church. So I, not that, you know, being a pastor has one to do or another, but he was, he's been successful in his career track. All right. So, yeah, it sounds to me like somebody was confused by the fact that he would talk to himself while he walked around. I, you know, obviously we've all seen homeless people do that. And it seems like they're insane, and some of them are. But it sounds like this guy had a legitimate reason for doing it. The fact that he had to practice repetitions of, of his speeches, I think that would be, you know, a legitimate reason to be, to be getting out in the morning and doing that. But how old was he at the time? I don't have an exact age. He's just listed as being in his 30s. Yeah, well, still 30s, not teens. Right. Yeah, I mean, it, it just... 30s isn't the kind of immaturity that I was talking about. I'm talking about younger than that. Right. Okay. So him probably not I, likely. I don't think so. I mean, there's nothing that you've told me that tells me that he would be that person. Rude comment and 19 wounds on somebody's body are totally different thing. Uh, and then there was one other suspect that was, there was no, again, witnesses of him doing anything but he was a a suspicious person reported by a couple of people. There was uh, it was a Hispanic male. Uh, never gave his age. He was working full time, so obviously not a not a student. I, I got the impression that we're talking about an adult at least that did appear mentally unstable. That would ride his bike around the neighborhood on a regular basis, and he was seen that morning by one eyewitness riding his bike that morning. Uh, he was reported to the authorities by someone that lived up near Kiao who said that uh, the, a day or two or a week after the murder had rode his bike to their house and was asking her kids if he could buy the pears off of her trees. He was described as okay. being mentally unstable. Uh, he was questioned okay, but never followed up on. All right, what time did was he seen on the day of the murder? There was a witness that saw him riding across the street in front of the school at 6.30 in the morning. And there was another, no, I think that was the only one that saw him that morning, was the 6.30 in the morning. And so they said he was mentally off, but he's never had, has he ever had a, an arrest record? Has he ever been arrested? Do you have his name? Do you, has he ever been arrested before or since? I do have his name, and I've looked him up, and I at least have not been able to find any criminal history for him. Yeah. I mean, asking to buy pairs rather than stealing pairs, I mean, he's, coherent enough to know that that better way to approach it than just coming up and stealing pairs, right? 
Right. He's offering to pay for it. That sounds like a pretty coherent person. I mean, he may be off, but doesn't sound like he's that off. But I would say if he did this, that you would have seen evidence that there was some post-defense behavior and that he would have done something like this. You don't start stabbing people 20 times, 19 times, your first violent ever attack. Right. Honestly, my impression of reading the witness statements was these ladies just thought that he was weird. You know, he had never done anything bad to them. They just they thought he was weird and they saw him around that morning. Yeah, I mean, I understand, and I think that's a good report, but, I mean, I just don't see any indications of the kind of violence that we see in this case. Right, and that's a really good point about him asking to buy the pairs rather than just sneaking in and stealing them. So, I have a question for you. Okay. There was apparently a trial, right? There was. Somebody was arrested, tried, and convicted for this? Yes, there was. Interesting. I guess now I can I can explain to you... A little more of what happened. The second individual that I mentioned to you, the six foot two white guy that got out of prison, mm-hmm. three and a half years after the fact, uh, there's a lot of family drama. It's a long story. You'll have to go back and listen to the first few episodes now to get it all. But his brother, who he lived with, and keep in mind, there's a $10,000 reward floating around, tells police after months of being interrogated by detective who's who's referred to as the master interrogator and uh, master at getting reluctant witnesses to talk, told police that on the morning of the offense that him and his brother were out drinking till 3 o'clock in the morning, and at 7 in the morning they woke up and decided to go for a jog. And they were going for a jog, and his brother came across Kiao and out of nowhere just grabbed her, told him to get the F out of here, and he ran away, and then his brother came back you know, 20 minutes later covered in blood. And he was the sole witness against Jesse, is his name, at his trial. Mm. Yeah, no physical evidence, no witnesses, nothing, just his testimony. And he was convicted on that? Yep, he was, and there's there's a little bit of more circumstance to that, but I haven't talked about it on the show yet, but to tell you about it off the air. Okay. Um Wow. So, um, so is that, uh, what, what's his name? His name is Jesse. So is Jesse's apartment facing? Okay. So she's walking to make, uh, she would walk in front of Jesse's apartment. Yes. Okay. So does Jesse's apartment face the school or face away from the school? It faces the school. So is it on the first or second floor? Second floor. And how long has he lived there? Uh, he'd lived there for about five months, four and a half months. Oh, not long. Okay. And he goes to jail because he's kind of got an anger issue and he gets in a fight in the bar. And he does he take somebody's knife and stab him or does he have his own knife? No, he took someone else's. The, the other person pulled the knife. He took it away from him and stabbed him. Yeah, he seems pretty sure of himself. Yeah, he definitely, even to this day, he's very sure of himself. He seems like he would not have any problem at all controlling a five foot tall, 110 pound woman. He's dealt with men, his own size or multiple men, right? Right. Same time. Right. One thing that worries me is that he's in an apartment that watches that track and probably saw her walking around every day. 
So if he had some sexual desires that were building up or frustrations, I would like to know what relationships has he had? How long was he out? What has he done, you know, since then? You know, what, what were the, this was, he was arrested how many years later? Three and a half years later. Three and a half years later for this crime. What did he do in between? What was his post-defense behavior? What, what happened during the days and weeks after this crime happened? Was he working? Did he leave town? His brother said he shows up with bloody clothes. His brother doesn't do anything about it, right? Right. And his brother was actually questioned by the police. They both were because they questioned everybody in the neighborhood uh, and both said they didn't know anything about it. And now he says, yeah, Bob, I, I just, you know, like I said, when you just posed him as a possibility, I don't at all. I had no idea you were talking about the guy that was that was arrested and convicted for this, obviously. Yeah. Um, and I just, I mean, I still had the same, the same exact response. And even more so now that I know these other factors, that uh, it's just, it's a very, very low, 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 low probability. Makes no sense. Yeah. No sense at all. Yeah. And to put it, and he could have had, he could have had her naked in two seconds and done whatever he wanted if that's what he wanted to do. Yeah. To, to put it mildly, Jesse was a big bad mother back then. And, you know, get into fistfights with multiple grown men and kicking their ass. Uh, yeah, that just the whole thing just never made any sense. The other interesting thing is every offense Jesse's had, because he does have, you know, an extensive criminal record, even for, you know, little, you know, going to the drunk tank for a night or two, getting in fights. He has never, ever had an offense against a woman or a child. And most of his fistfights were because someone was threatening or hurting a woman. Mm. So that really struck me as odd. Like, why would that guy all of a sudden decide to go kill an innocent woman? It just didn't make sense to me. Not like he has long standing ties to this community and he's that, and now this is an Asian invasion. And so he's striking out against them. There's nothing like that present. So I don't know. I just, I'm, I'm struggling to find any kind of motivation in my head to why this guy would, would do something like this. And I do not believe that. I think that hit, were it Jesse, the only crime scene would be the primary crime scene. And it would be very, you, you, you know, it would be very easy to see that she was controlled immediately and he, she was dispatched. And that's that. I, everything you've told me just cuts against him being this person behaviorally. I don't see any reason why he would have done this. And it's so inconsistent with what we see behaviorally at this scene. It's this crime was done by somebody or some people who did not have the physical strength or the mental acuity to control her. And so it was done by somebody who was mostly on the weak side, was not athletic, or was not a powerfully built person. This does not appear to be the crime of somebody who who actually is physically powerful or physically assertive. And when you look at the circumstances, the multiple incidents that are contained within this crime, it's somebody or some people who started in one place, ended up in another place, and somehow she got away in between. She was able to continue fighting until she eventually bled out. And it's just not...
somebody who could immediately control her. And I do think with the information that I have now, I believe that the offender, again, was either somebody who was very immature, maybe in their teens, or had some mental defect that would give them the intellect and abilities of somebody who was in their teens. I guess there is one other possibility that somebody who was fairly incapacitated by drugs or alcohol, but if somebody had gone out and gotten wasted and then got up and went out for a run, I would say that person was not incapacitated at that time. So I don't think it's that either. Okay. Well, that is, this has been an amazing analysis and I'm extremely grateful that you came on and did this. I do want to talk to you for just a minute about some post-defense behavior for something that hasn't been covered on the show yet. So what mm-hmm. I'm going to do is end this interview here. And for the listeners, this portion of what I'm going to talk to Jim about will get dropped in in two weeks when we get into this post-defense behavior. Okay, but let me say, you know, also, I really appreciate you having me on, Bob, and I really, really love the fact that you are driven to try to right injustices wherever they are. And I really enjoy working with you. I think um, this has been a really interesting case to discuss with you. And I hope that we can continue to discuss it because I'm sure you're going to find out more information. And as always, we evaluate based on the information we know and things can change if more information comes in. So, you know, looking forward to hearing more about this case. And the other thing is I really, my sympathies go out to Kiao's family and friends because obviously this was a brutal, a brutal murder and just such a shame. So there you have it. Jim is one of the most respected criminal behavior analysts in the field. And in his opinion, the most likely offender or offenders that killed Kiao Gove was someone or possibly multiple someones who are young and criminally inexperienced. A description that does not fit Jesse Eldridge. Jim's analysis of this crime scene has done one very important thing for us. It's given us a logical direction to investigate. At this point, I don't think Royster was that far off the mark when he spent so long believing that Judy Gonzalez and Jesse James Swindell might have actually witnessed the attack. But what I want to do next is to figure out what was so perplexing to Jim. What went so horribly wrong that Jesse Eldridge was convicted of this murder? Hi, I'm looking for Carol Eldridge. My name is Bob. I'm, I'm an investigative journalist doing a story about her son, Jesse. Yeah, and I was the one who uh, testified against him because he lived with me at the time it happened. Next week on Truth and Justice. Justice is a production of New Beginning Incorporated. Our executive producer is Mike Bussing. All music for this episode was created and scored by PutThemInASong.com. As always, I want to thank Tate Krupa for designing and creating our logo. I want to thank our transcription team, Sarah Hoyt, Sarah Mueller, and Desiree Dunn. And thank you to Chris Brinkley of SylviaConsultants.com for constructing and maintaining our new website. 
And I also want to throw out a very special thanks to Jim Clementi. Jim has an incredible amount of irons in the fire, and he is extremely busy. So I'd like to offer my sincere gratitude for Jim taking the time to not only break down this case for us and study all of the reports and the diagrams, but also for taking the time to come on the show today. To hear more from Jim, you can check out his podcast, Real Crime Profile, where he discusses cases with his co-hosts, Laura Richards and Lisa Zambetti. And also keep your eyes open for Jim's brand new podcast, Locked Up Abroad. I also want to thank each and every one of you. The support we've had in Season 3 has been incredible. People are reaching out and sharing information, and every day more and more people are coming forward with information about the people that are involved in this case. I strongly believe that it is that outreach that is finally going to give us the break to figure out who killed Kiao. So keep sending in those thoughts, theories, and ideas to theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can comment on our Facebook page, Truth and Justice with Bob Ruff, Get involved with the discussion that's happening on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page on Facebook or follow along on Twitter at Truth Justice Pod. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, I'm signing off. I'm Bob Ruff, and this has been Truth and Justice. Truth and Justice.